Welcome to Off Key, a Membrane Labs podcast about the music industry for the industry novice. I'm your host, Talia Seidman Wright. This season of Off Key will be taking a turn down a new path, moving on from the who question towards the how to. Our hope is that this season will act as a music industry 101, providing accessible information for industry newcomers like myself who are interested in building an understanding of how to earn money and achieve success as a creator in Canada's music industry. Join me as I learn about the ins and outs of the music industry from the perspective of two key players in the creation of music, the songwriter and the recording artist. Through research and conversations with music professionals, I'll explore how these creators make money and who and what they should be aware of as they build careers in the ever-evolving music business landscape. This week, we'll be looking at the role of the recording artist in the process of creating a musical work. Up until this point in the season, we've been using the term performer and recording artist somewhat interchangeably, both of which can refer to someone who performs and records in the studio or on stage. For clarity's sake, we'll start to think of them as separate characters in our storyline when we unpack the recording and live performance sides of the music industry. Although these two roles commonly overlap, they represent very different ways of earning money, or at least very different revenue streams. So we should differentiate between earning money for your recordings, like through streaming or selling vinyl records, versus earning money for your performances, like when you're performing live on stage. For now though, let's focus on understanding the role of the recording artist in the process of recording. A dictionary definition of a recording artist is a person who performs music for recordings. More specifically, this would include instrumentalists and backup singers, known as session musicians, band members, and the artist that the public knows, aka the name on the cover of the CD or that you search for on Spotify. While these artists are the people we primarily associate with any given recording, there are usually at least a few other performers in the background that contribute to the recording. Session musicians have historically been very important to the recording process, providing the instrumentation that sometimes came to define the songs by solo-featured artists. For example, Frank Sinatra has become known not only for his vocal performance, but also for Quincy Jones' unique arrangements and the many session musicians' skillful performances on Sinatra recordings. Similarly, the Funk Brothers at Motown Records played on more number one hits than the Beatles, including recordings for Diana Ross, The Temptations, and Stevie Wonder. Another group of session musicians that came to be known as the Wrecking Crew performed on hundreds of top 40 hits in the 60s and 70s by the Mamas and Papas, Sonny and Cher, and Frank and Nancy Sinatra. Sometimes they even acted as ghost players on songs credited to bands like the Beach Boys and the Monkees. In the 1960s, session vocalists such as Darlene Love recorded lead vocals for songs that were then credited to other artists. Overall, session musicians were generally not publicly recognized for their work while they were active. But recently, there has been more attention brought to their important contributions to many recordings we love through documentaries like The Wrecking Crew, Standing in the Shadows of Motown, and 20 Feet from Stardom. If you haven't seen them already, definitely check them out. Today, session players are less active, primarily because of technological innovation. With a computer, keyboard, and voice, a person can create a recording with a full range of software instruments and stacked vocal tracks. Session musicians still play a small role in the modern music industry, particularly in film scoring, but overall the recording culture has shifted significantly in the past few decades. I had the pleasure of speaking with Jeff Wolpert, a multi-award winning engineer and producer at Desert Fish Studios in Toronto, and a professor in music technology and digital media at the University of Toronto. Jeff explained the role of session players and the ways that studio culture has changed over the years. You know, depending on the artist in the old school, there'd be studio musicians. These were people who had very particular skills uh, um, to play, and I was very privileged to grow up in an age where that was a remarkable skill to have yeah. and I still get to work with some of them but the culture has changed very much yeah. on that which is interesting. Mm-hmm. We'd often see the same players all the time okay. um, so it was common um, to uh, use the same players for let's say in the in the, for country music and where a lot of the you, there were bands but there were often a lot of country music associated with the singer that's the artist yeah. and that's a, so the band there's not really a band there's a live band maybe for touring but um, there's a there's a, 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 the, then there's a studio band and these were players like here we had a great deal in Nashville which I've, I've been in a bunch of times it's really uh, there's a, a culture of that yeah. and these are people who come in and you really have an expectation of what they're going to do because you've heard them before 
and that sort of it would be like an orchestra like um, the New York Philharmonic or Berlin or one of those where the where they've been playing together for a long time and the and the conductor has a, an expectation of what each player can do yes. and that's really what happened in this yeah. and you have people you know people talk now about well talk now but there's a lot of talk in my business about process signal processing and stuff like that oh yeah you got to compress this to make this this that and that the people that I grew up with playing would uh, come in with very sophisticated equipment very high end equipment and um, they would have been practicing how to make something sound completely even without any processing whatsoever for on my end. So we were never really compensating for their playing. It was just what we were doing was maybe enhancing or changing or adjusting because it, it was a, a kind of an artistic decision, but it was never fixing, right? And that's what you got from these people. You got, you got people who could play incredibly quiet acoustic guitar parts without the whisper of an extraneous noise do you know what I mean and yeah. that takes incredible technique who could play voicings on a keyboard instrument where every voicing which means the relative level of every note was always in perfect balance and uh, drummers who would um, you know there's a myth in the in the music recording business a bit that I see which is and I see it a lot with young players and I understand it but uh, so it's where people play very dynamically. In other words, where the soft part of the tune, they play really quiet, and then it gets loud, and it get, gets really loud. And said, "Oh well, I'm playing with dynamics." This is, uh, and I understand that. But the recording business, or the not the not the business, but the art of recording, is in understanding what happens to the sound when you change levels. So, for instance, right. if you're a drummer, and you play the bass drum loud, it sounds one way. If you play it another way, uh, quietly, it sounds completely different. Now, that might not serve the thing, because nobody really wants to hear a bass drum part with very, that's woolly and woofy when it's quiet, and then really clicky and, hit and, and right. punchy when it's loud. Most of the time, we think of the bass drum as a consist consistent thing. So the players that I grew up with were incredibly consistent about that. And when they wanted to give you dynamics, they played less. <laughs> it was yeah. it was a the trick was in orchestration yeah. not so much in dynamic technique do right. you know what I mean and, so, right. and there were guys like it was a great drummer who was been around for a very long time he's still playing and he had this trick which I always loved um, there's a sound called the cross stick sound and a cross stick sound is when you take your, the, 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 the stick and you hold it in your hand like and you put one end on the snare drum okay. head and the other head it bangs against the rim to make oh, a I kind see. of a wood block sound. Yeah, it's yeah. called cross stick. Yeah. That's the technique. Now, the problem is when you play cross stick is where you put the stick, where you hold it, and the length of the, the uh, you know the length from the tip to where the rim is. That all changes the sound. So just before the song that he was going to play cross stick on, mm -hmm. he'd move it around till he found the perfect kind of clock sound that he was looking for. And then, and then for the rest of the tune, he'd never move that hand. Wow. Right? So he'd play it there, and if he had to do a drum a drum fill, he did it with his other hand. <laughs> wow. So you'd get this, and, and it was completely consistent. Yeah. And by the way, I think he had the same laundry in his bass drum the entire 20 years that I worked wow. with him. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so that kind of, or bass players who would play, who would practice with a meter, like those meters that we have on the console, and making every note on the instrument go to the exactly the same level, which is hard because the instruments are not intrinsically that even. They have resonances and thingies. And if you're a player, you know, there's things called wolf tones and all these kind of things that are going on. And they would practice so that the signal you got from them was virtually perfect. You know, people would say, how'd you get that sound? And I go, I didn't do anything. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. And that's it. And so that level of, of um, you know, uh, I did a record with this flute player from L.A. who was kind of L.A classical music royalty basically and she her her living was she played on 1200 film scores and um and you we've heard her a million times and not known who it is and she got up and she played with the orchestra we did a record of kind of stuff that was written exclusively for her and she was you know 65 or 66 and put everybody in the orchestra to shame because she had that ability to play perfectly in time perfectly in tune with a ton of music which yeah. is not what they really teach right and yeah. music schools teach you to play expressively or this and that she was unbelievable wow. and so that level of skill really 
uh, playing in the studio with that level of precision is something that, it, by the way, classical musicians are taught that, but they're, also, they're not really taught to play, like an orchestra rarely plays in time like that, right? right. Yet a studio musician has to learn to play incredibly in time, because yeah. often they're playing with something that's already recorded, and that sort of stuff. So it's a, it's a, it's a skill that is, a, it's a marvelous skill. And that's right. Now, there are great players today. That's not to say that there aren't. There are great players. But the culture of playing in the studio five days a week or seven days a week, that doesn't exist in the same way. So where are people going to get that kind of experience, you know, to do that sort of a thing? Like there are markets where this still happens in Los Angeles and New York. There's still big enough markets and even here to some extent, but not like it used to be, I would say that, you know, where I'd see the same people every week. Ask them, you know, I, I used to do like, you know, weekly TV shows we do the score for and it would be the same orchestra every week and you do you but at the beginning of the session everybody's asking them, how, how are your kids you know what's going on with yeah. this stuff it was this real community of people which and that I miss the most yeah. I miss the most the community aspect of the studio culture that's the, that's the 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 interesting part but on the other hand there's still tons of recording going down the maybe the issue is you know to, to some extent now when I'm recording and if it's not somebody with that level of skill, I have all these tools to fix it. Mm-hmm. And for better or worse, I might add. Yeah. <laughs> like, I can't, I, I'm not gonna pass a moral judgment on that. Um, it would be easier if I didn't have to, yeah. but I'm glad I can. Because the level that is demanded mm-hmm. is, like the level of perfection that is demanded in recording um, has only increased. Um, yet the skill, not the skill, but the experience of the players who do it has not been valued mm. in the same, or is not valued, that's, that's the wrong word, is no longer, has not, you know, the, the situation has devolved that we don't have people who get to have that kind of experience right. and that sort of stuff. So instead we seem to create it, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you could say digitally or electronically. Yeah. I just... Um, but so the tech has kind of replaced mm-hmm. some of the skill. Yeah. Strangely, you know, but that, that's a weird thing to say, but it's true. <laughs> Although studio culture has seen a dramatic shift with technological innovation, recording studios remain an important part of creating music, especially when artists are ready to turn their demo tracks into a fully produced EP or album. So what does the recording process look like and who is involved? Matteo Palmasano, a composer, producer, and educator, explained the various people involved in the recording process. So, start off with a songwriter, pretty straightforward. Um, they write the songs, yeah, yeah. right? Uh, recording artists, they're the person that records on the record who are not necessarily the songwriters. Um, they're usually the performers, but can be the songwriters. Um, you've got the recording engineer. Um, they're the technical people that record the records. Um, the mixing engineer, who is not always the same as the recording. Right. Um, but sometimes is. A lot more often now it is, but it used to be uh, separated. And for a lot of major records, uh, it still is very separate. Um, <clears throat> the thought process of having a separate record uh, recording engineer and a mixing engineer is that they will take different approaches to the music and also... Um, maybe catch things that the other engineer didn't. Right. Um, so there's actually three different engineers during the process. There's the recording, the mixing, and the mastering. And they're typically supposed to be all different. Um, but like I said, diminishing budgets means more people are doing more things. So I am sometimes the recording and the mixing engineer. Sometimes I'm the mixing and the mastering engineer. Right. Sometimes I'm all three. Um, so yeah, so then, okay, so... Uh, the recording engineer will do all the technical stuff in the studio to record the music. Mm-hmm. The mixing engineer will do the technical stuff where um, they're actually mixing all the audio that has already been recorded. And they'll do that in combination with using software and hardware, uh, depending on how they work. Uh, and the mixing engineer's goal is to balance everything and make all these separate recordings sound cohesive together and musical. Um, the mastering engineer is typically the person that finalize it's, they're like the finalizer of the process where they prepare the music for distribution for, um, CDs, vinyl, uh, streaming, uh, radio. And those might have different sort of specifications. Absolutely. 
Jeff Wolpert also shared his expertise on what a typical recording session looks like, how much it costs, and the importance of recording in a studio in order to bring songs to life. Most of the time I'm working directly with and for the artist. That's okay. usually who my client is, right? Um, occasionally, um, I mean, you define the client by the person who's paying most of the time, <laughs> but um, that's actually the owner, not always the client. But right. the um, and uh, uh, most of the time, it's the artist, really, or the if it's a film thing, it's the composer. Although ultimately, what we do goes to some other company or something. That my relationship is directly with the, the creator of the product, <laughs> if you want to get crass, um, and. Um, so the typical session, uh, if we're recording, is uh, uh, we have a session date that may be, depend, which studio we're in depends on the size of the session. So some stuff goes on here, it's relatively small. If it's orchestral, it's going to a larger venue. Um, and uh, musicians are hired in the case of, uh, so it's like a more kind of indie kind of a record kind of a thing. So then maybe it's a band right. or something like that. So then the musicians aren't exactly hired yeah uh, they're part of the you know the endeavor so they show up um, uh, we we uh, talk to the artists or the band or whatever in advance we know what's coming pre-set up I would say your general recording session from my point of view takes if it's a band or something takes three hours to set up before the band gets here the idea is that when they're here it moves very quickly so sometimes people say they don't like the rate or something like that, and I may have to remind them that what they're asking for, or they'll say, oh, we, were, we want to record one song and it's going to take us an hour, and I said, yeah, I, I can't do that because that's a four or five hour endeavor for me, or something. So we make, I, I usually call like for a three hour minimum, that's pretty standard for the amount of work it's going to take. But I don't charge them for the setup. The only time that that ever happens is and it's not me who's charging, it's, for, it's, it's, it's uh, an orchestral session. Generally, the studio, because of the complexity and the amount of time, can take five, six hours to set up right. or something. So they will have a setup fee or something like that. But for your band, that's usually not it. And, you know, most of the time we're working by the day. And so then it's worth whatever effort it's yeah. worth and that sort yeah. of thing. So we set up. And the idea is that when the players get here, it's fast. So um, one of the benefits of having this much experience is I pretty much know what to expect. Um, and I find that if we spend too long setting up with the musicians, you kill the buzz really fast. And uh, so the idea is to get them up and running and playing as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. um, which means, so, so uh, I have, uh, it's myself, I have a, an assistant who works with me. Um, if there's a producer that's not the artist playing on the floor, that person will be in the control room with me. That's not always the case. Often it's self-produced, so it's either somebody who's playing and stuff like that. So you hope that they're going to rely on me to some extent to tell them whether something was good or not in right. terms of performance as a listener, because I might it might be easier for me to hear mistakes or something yeah. like that. Um, so that becomes a, a bit of a collaboration, but it's not necessary. They can. It's just it's faster than them, than somebody who's on the floor doing something coming in and listening to everything that doubles the amount of time and stuff yeah. like that. So you know, at some point, hopefully you work up enough trust, or it's obvious. You know what I mean? Or you might say, hey, that was great. Uh, you know, why don't we try it again and see if we can get better? That's great. But you know, um, so so that's really the the personnel. There's the musicians, the producer. Producers a loaded word these days because. Yeah. Um, um, you know, it used to be there was a producer, recording engineer, assistant, musicians. That was, or artist, depending on if there was a solo artist, who, and then other musicians who were supporting musicians. Um, or what I guess people call studio musicians, right? right? Yeah. Um, and that was a common way to do it. Now, um, it's often a band or something like that, and it's unclear who the artist is in particular. It could be the group of people. Um, and the word producer is that... the often means one there isn't one which means self-produced and whether or not uh, the there's one person directing the show or it's a group or, or something like that or it's just we're a band and we want to come in and play that that sort of a thing uh, then the engineer ends up helping out that way which you could call co-production but the anyway so so then 
your typical recording session really depends on this on yeah. who we're recording. So if it's yeah. a band and it's a an indie band, it's probably collaborative amongst the band. We're we generally speaking to one person just to get the information that we need. Either it's the manager or it's the alleged leader of the band or something like that. We get the info. We set up in advance. We get him in here. We start playing as quickly as we can, and then we just see how it goes from there, depending on what the yeah. plan or how the production's going. You know, some people come in and everybody plays together. Mm -hmm. We find playing if it's a really a band playing together really works um, so uh, what we'll do is we'll have everybody play together but the way we'll set it up anybody can be fix their own part without affecting the other people so we may play many people in isolation from each other but playing at the same time right. that seems to work cool. yeah. well and it's uh, efficient uh, one thing I, I a point to make mm -hmm. is um, the goal in general is to get things done well and quickly um, only because life's too short so it's a funny um, thing because if you get paid by the hour you think you'd want to stretch it out or something but believe me we don't right <laughs> it's, fun yeah. it's funny that you want to get it done you want to get it done well you want to get it quickly and you'd rather just charge good money for that rather than so the, the economy of this situation is depends on what you're looking for. Right. Do you know what I mean? If you if you want to spend days and weeks and months in the studio, that's great. Mm -hmm. But uh, and I don't know if that's necessary or not. And it's not really up to me because if you want to do it, that's excellent. Yeah. But but um, uh, uh, most of the uh, um, most of the time, people want to come in and be efficient because they have limited funds. Okay, so if you're in, again, we're talking at the starting off level, the sure. lower end of the scale. Yeah. Right? If you're an indie band and you want to make a record, um, and uh, let's say you're a band, uh, and we can't, that's what people say, how much does it cost to make a record? It's, it's, we say, well, it's hard for me to know how long you're going to take. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I will guesstimate, let's say, <laughs> on, uh, you know, and so I'll, that's why I need to know the size of the project. I'll say, well, how many songs, right? Okay. So how many songs? Ten song album. Okay, so let's say that you're a band mm -hmm. and you're uh, you you haven't made uh, maybe you've made a record before or yeah. something like that, but not a lot or something like that. So let's say we're gonna pretend it's gonna take you a day per song mm -hmm. in the studio to record the bed track, which would be the everybody playing at once, and then do whatever repairs you need to do. Let's say it's a day per song. So there's ten days gone, right? Okay. And then let's say you need to do uh, vocals and uh, let's call them vocals, right? And you can't sing 10 songs in a row. And yeah. in one day, that's too hard to do. So you're going to want to do them in shorter bits. Let's say it's going to take you three hours to sing a song from beginning to end or something like that. So you need 10 of those. That's another 30 hours. Well, that's, let's have 10 hours a day. That's another three days. Let's, say, let's just do it in days or something like that. And then let's say, let's say that's it. There's no fancy, you're not being in the marching band, no kids choir, no string section. Okay? And uh, so that's it. So we're 13 days in production, and we have to mix. So if, I, if I'm going to sit and mix something that, um, and there's going to be opinions uh, and, uh, and things like that, let's say it's three songs every two days. Uh, to, so I'll mix a song in the, in the morning, finish it in the afternoon, set up the next one, go home, come back, finish that one, do another one. So three songs every two days. We have uh, 10 songs, so that's six, let's say it's seven days. There, so now into 20 days, right? 20 days. And then we might want to go back for a day or two because now people want to make changes. So let's add another two days wild card. So that's 22 days. And then a day to master work, 23 days or something like that. So I'd round it up to 25 days, give you a daily rate, and that's how much it costs. <laughs> right? So if the daily rate is $1,000, that's $25,000. Daily rate is $500. You just work it out from there. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's time. That's that's no, the, it makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> when you break it down. Yeah, there, there's 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 no real. And then you know, is it going to happen in that time or not? So you know, that's the. A lot of people want package deals, and a package deal is risky, for both parties, because I don't want to make a package where I think we're not budgeting enough time, and then when I put the package together, it's probably more than you want to spend. So then I said, well, why don't we just do it, by the hour, by the day. I really want to get it done. I'm not here, life's too short to extend the time. Do you know what I mean? And that, and that sort of thing. It's, it's, 
everybody's happiest, including me, when we're doing good work and moving fast, mm -hmm. right? And that yeah. sort of stuff. So, I mean, if you don't believe that, well, there's nothing I can do. Yeah. You know what I mean? And and um, but uh, uh, and if it takes less time, I won't like like you know. It rarely takes less time, by the way. <laughs> yeah. First of all, everything in the studio takes an hour. It doesn't matter what you say. Oh, I just got this one little part I want to do. It's going to be really fast. It takes an hour. Yeah. It just does. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and that's yeah. it. You know, or people say, "Oh, we have all the harmony parts. Why don't we all sing them at once?" Most of the time, that's a bad idea. Yeah. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Because one person makes a mistake, and then you got to figure it out that and figure it out. So it's sort of a false economy to do things. I can do this all together. Unless you're, you know, unless you're a band, you're used to playing all together, and yeah. that's cool. That's why we hire studio musicians because yeah. they can. You right. know what I mean? So that idea of hiring somebody who's really good at what they do, asking them to do what they're good at, is usually a lot faster than trying to get somebody who's doing it for the first time. Right. Right. And or doing it for the first time under the really intense bright lights and microscopic perspective that unfortunately recording can can yeah. you know can give you so and then you discover that it's just not what you thought it was right. or something like that um so so that's you know that's a producer's job if there is one to try to figure out where the money's best spent but um so yeah so they just time and money it's, it's a pretty yeah. easy equation you know what yeah. i mean there's no kind of no magic there one of the things i i uh, was uh, taught and also found very valuable is that uh, people when they're listening in we use headphones a lot because of course we're trying to isolate the sound yeah. from the speakers and stuff and we have like feedback issues if we don't yeah. um, we uh, a lot of the time uh, um, when listening in headphones um, for a musician to play great they have to kind of think they're not in headphones like in other words they need to forget for anybody to really to do what they do and just listen and do what do what they want to do. In order for that to happen, the headphones the headphone mix should sound great. Yeah. Now, this is the best time it happens when people are just lost in what they're doing because they put the headphones on and it sounds like a record. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? And 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 that's it. Um, the the not always, but one of the issues with home recording is this deferred gratification thing, which means that you do something, you're recording in your bedroom mm -hmm. with whatever mic you own, and that's all fine and stuff like that. But it sounds, and I love this word. Jejun. It sounds dead and lifeless. That's because it sounds like you're and and, and yeah. you you don't have the toys that we have to bring life to it immediately. And so and even if you could, there are toys you can use digitally. There are problems because when you use the digital toys, they create a delay in the system, and it's impossible to you know that like when you're listening with an echo on yourself, but like with a delay, and you can't talk that. So you don't use those because you can't because your laptop can't do that live. So you don't bother with that, and you just leave it dead and dry. So. The problem, and, and I'm not overstating because really it's not very inspirational, is it? No. That's the issue with that. Yeah. Is that so what we try and do in, in the studio really is make you forget where you are. That sounds good. Yeah, that, that's, that's <laughs> part of the job, yeah. really. And it's what, you talk about the teaching thing, what I teach my students, that what people are listening to makes a difference. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It makes a difference in the performance. Yeah. And what we're trying to do is inspire the best performance we can. Because mm -hmm. look, there's no crowd, right? Recording has to be better than live. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I mean, yeah. that's a qualitative judgment and stuff yeah. like that. But you gotta get people to really, I mean, it's the difference between making a movie and a live play too. Remember, we come to the source in, in recording. And so there is that intimacy, which you, it's difficult to get live. Yeah. And we need to milk that for all it's worth in order to make it involve the listener in it. Or else it's just, dry and lifeless. <laughs> Since we're on the topic of recording, I think it's important to look at one of the major players in the recording process, the producer. The role of the producer is challenging to define because it can take on many different forms and the cost of hiring a producer varies greatly depending on each particular agreement. Jeff Wolpert explained the role of the producer and his experience producing for various artists. I also spoke with Byron Pascoe, an entertainment lawyer at Edwards Law, who discussed producer agreements and the fees or shares of royalties established in contracts. So, uh, look, the producer gets it done. So it's their job to find the right people okay. to, uh, in the old world of record production, where you had an artist who was probably signed to a record label and there was even, it wasn't even a band. I think of, like, Aretha Franklin yeah. or something like that. Then, um, uh, you know, 
uh, who maybe didn't write the songs either. But I mean, that's neither here nor there. I mean, the uh, finding the songs is a, it can be the part of the producer's job if that's how it is in country music. That's still a big thing with country artists, but many write, but many don't. And um, um, and uh, then uh, it's their job. So you can have uh, you can have the musical producer who is in there. Um, uh, uh, writing the song with the artist. If that's the case, yes, they should get publishing. Um, um, or then you have the uh, uh, the production producer, okay. who's the person who says, "Okay, this would be great. Uh, uh, let's 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 uh, uh, put some. Uh, we have a, an idea. We're going to put strings on this. I know a great string arranger who we can you know do that and speak to and work and negotiate the rate and stuff like that. Then be in the studio judging which are the Good performances and getting it done. Right. It's a getting. It's the getting it done person, right? And th that that's the producer. It's kind of like the director of a movie. You, you may or may not have written the script, right? So that that's the point. Um, then you have uh, the production crew, which would be the engineers. So engineering became, you know, uh, a bit more um, interpretive over over uh, you know since the last fifty years, and um, so. You go to particular people for particular vibes, particular sounds, and stuff like that, mostly because they have a reputation in that style and that sort of thing. And it is a bit of a black art in that, you know, I teach and I can explain as much as I can explain, but there's an intangible point, which is, can you hear it? And I can't teach people how to hear more than yeah. show them something and say, can you hear it? Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, and um, so that becomes a, a part of it. And, the you know, the studio and you hear about the vibes in different studios and the studios that have a sound over the Muscle Shoals, A&R, yeah. all these kind of famous places over the over the years um, and um, Skywalker and all these places. Um, so, uh, 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 you know, that's a decision. It's often a monetary decision to some extent. And uh, but if money's no object, we go where we want to go. I mean, I've been to um, the Alhambra in Granada, Spain, for a week because we wanted to record in in an amphitheater there. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And do you know what I mean? And I've been to there's Peter Gabriel's place in in England in Bath, England, which has a particular vibe. Um, there's scoring stages around. There's uh, you know I've been in Indonesia, I've been in Beijing, and stuff like that. Mostly because people wanted these venues, and it's in Havana for two months recording because of the vibe, right? And the players and all that sort of stuff that are there. So yeah, that's great, and it's great when there's money and stuff like that. But um, often the the producer is technical, and often they're not. So if you're uh, like the greatest producers that I know, guys like Phil Ramone, who's no longer with us and stuff like that, who kind of knew what he was doing, but he knew enough to know whether I knew what I was doing, which was okay. the most interesting thing. <laughs> you know? And, um, and, um, uh, and uh, they're, they're producers who are very tech and very hands-on, and they're producers who are composers, really, at heart, and right. that's what they just know when they hear something they like. So in producer agreements, agreements between an artist and his or her you know, producer or a studio, part of that agreement should include that the rights to the master are being transferred from the studio to the artist. And in return, the studio is getting something. They're probably getting at least a fee upfront, you know, an, an upfront fee to use the studio and use the services of the producer. Uh, and they may be entitled to more than that. It may be that the the producer is entitled to a share of uh, the composition. It might be that the producer is entitled to a share of money generated from the master. And that's a pretty common scenario whereby an artist starts working with a producer, the artist pays the producer something, and the artist is promising to pay the producer a share a piece of the money that's generated in the future from this recording, if any. So an artist has a deal with a producer whereby the artist, he owes her, her producer, she owes, she owes her producer, uh, you know, 10% of money she receives from, from digital sales and licenses of the music of the, of the recordings. If, if the artist gets a thousand dollars, then a hundred dollars is paid to the producer. So uh, when I do a real production where I, where I am the producer, uh, I will have an arrangement for some percentage of sales, okay. right? Yeah. Usually there's a, a percentage of sales from record one that I get, but I won't get it until, 
and this usually means there's a record company, but yeah. I won't get it until the, the record company is recouped from their, uh, from their sales the amount of the cost of the record. But the moment that's paid back, it's re re the money that's owed to me, let's say it's 5% or whatever, is retroactive to the first record sold, right? right? So, so that if, if it took them 1,000 records to make the recoup and it was $10 a record and I'm making 50 cents, they owe me 1,000 times 50 from the moment they sell record 1,001. That's right. generally how that deal works. Right. So, so you can defer, but once the recoup is done, that, that's how it's done. Okay. Um, I will say that uh, uh, sometimes it's like that. Sometimes it's, uh, there'll be a fee negotiated. There's always a fee negotiated. And, and then they'll say, oh, but can you give us a break? And I'll say, great, it'll be for 3% of the back end recoup up to this point, stuff like that. 99% right. of the time, people will find the money for the fee. And right. I think they're right. They should. Because just the accounting alone mm -hmm. and, the, and, and the hassle of that can be problematic. Right. And if you think you're going to sell the product to somebody else, well, then you have to ask me, don't you? Because everybody can, becomes a part owner. And so that can be, pro, uh, uh, that can be a, um, a roadblock. Now that we know a little bit more about the recording process and the various players involved, it's important to think about how rights are divided over a sound recording and how performers get paid. As we discussed in the first episode, when we introduced the recording artist and the songwriter, recording artists hold sound recording or master rights over a musical work. Pop stars like Britney Spears or Justin Bieber, along with their labels, have master rights over the recordings they perform on, which is one way they earn their riches. But as I've done more research, I've become somewhat confused about whether other performers like session players have master rights to a recording as well. In the past, players were often paid a flat fee, and that's it, meaning that they would not receive royalties for future sales of that recording. I've been wondering if this has changed in recent years, and whether session musicians earn a percentage of royalties from the recording they perform on. What rights, if any, do they hold, and how does this compare to the featured recording artist? In a recording, various performers are classified as either featured performers or non-featured performers, which is important to determining royalty splits. Featured performers would typically be the person whose name is associated with the recording, whereas non-featured performers would be those who perform in the background, such as background singers or musicians. Using the song Thank You Next as an example, Ariana Grande would be the featured performer, and Taylor Parks and Victoria Monet would be the non-featured performers, as they sing background vocals on the recording. Each country has different regulations on performers' rights and royalties. In Canada, the Recording Artist Collecting Society, or Actor Racks, and the Musicians' Rights Organization of Canada, or MROC, represent performers' rights and advocate for equitable remuneration for all recording artists. In 1997, the Copyright Act of Canada was amended to recognize recording artists' essential contributions to the creation of recordings. Up until then, performers were largely unable to capture a share of the royalties from the use of recordings they performed on, although Canadian songwriters and publishers had been collecting royalties on those recordings for many years. This type of right is called the neighboring right, reflecting how recording artists' performing rights are the neighbor, or equivalent, to the performing rights of songwriters. I had the pleasure of speaking with Matt Craig from MROC and Andrew Karras from Actor Racks, who explained featured and non-featured performers and neighboring rights in more depth. So I guess if you think of it, um, sort of as you were saying, if you think of um, a song, like the actual written song, the composition, as you know, a piece of intellectual property that if you wrote that song, that is, you know, you own the rights to that, um, but then you go and record the song, then the recording is sort of a separate entity in itself. And within that recording, there are also rights, neighboring rights, you could say, um, that are available to the people who worked on that recording. So, um, and there's sort of two halves to it. There's the master owner side, um, and then there's the performer side. So that's where we come in. Mm -hmm. um, so essentially, if you have contributed to a sound recording and it's received play under the tariffs that we um, work under, mm -hmm. then you are entitled to receive a royalty for that. And, you know, that can be, that can take sort of any form, you know, where there's two categories that we sort of work with. So we have um, feature performers and non-feature performers. Okay. Um, so a feature performer would be, say, you're either a solo artist or you're in a band and, you know, there's four band members and you're one of those members. Or um, you do like a feature on somebody else's song. So it's, you know, 
rapper featuring so-and-so and you're that person. So that, that would fit under the feature category. Okay. Um, and then the non-feature category would be for like session musicians or really, you know, anybody else who you might have had come into the studio and performed on the song. So, you know, say you're the studio assistant and they were like, hey, can you come and do like gang vocals or clap on a song? Right. That still counts. Like you can still are entitled to receive a royalty from that because you contributed to the recording itself. Well, if you're a performer, um, there really isn't that much for you, you know, in, in Canada or anywhere else. I mean, if, if, if you take away kind of the neighboring right, the royalty that we're talking about now, the only real options are, you know, if you're lucky enough to maybe use something like the CFM or the AFM to do a session and you record on CFM paper, you'll get a session fee. But typically, as you know, usually you get like a high five or a slice of pizza for your work. (laughs) Um, Aside from that, if you're a a royalty artist and you're signed to a label, you know, the agreement that you have with the record label would present you with some royalties through that, you know, through that agreement. Um, But those are subject to recoups and all kinds of different expenses by the record company. So you might not get that much through that avenue either. So really the neighboring right is the only royalty for performers, I think, right now that exists and that is substantial. Well, it's not, I wouldn't say substantial because it should be larger, but it's significant. Um, And to to be honest with you, I mean, this is something that didn't even exist, you know, more than 25 years ago. Before 1997, when the legislation came into place in Canada, there was no royalty for performers. And that's, it's a crazy concept. You know, I, I'm, you know, sort of, unfortunately, have had the, the misfortune of talking to a few performers uh, in different roles in the industry who, you know, have done a lot of session work in the States, like in the 60s and 70s. And now they're, you know, without money in old age homes, like, you know, for lack of a better term, sort of rotting away. And it's really sad, you know, it's, and I think that's why these rights were brought into place in Canada and why they exist. And, uh, you know, they're still in a lot of ways, still in their infancy. And I think they should be extended to a lot of other revenue streams, but that's kind of a whole other topic. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I always say the song is kind of, you know, without the recording artist or the performers, the song is really just words and music on paper. Which isn't to diminish the song, obviously, because the song is probably the most important aspect. It's the origin of the idea. But, you know, without the people actually playing the music, there would be no recording. So yeah. it's it's essential to the, you know, to the full creation of that totally. idea. But, yeah. you know, there's this idea of splits, right? So yeah. songwriters uh, have splits that are determined at the time of writing the song. So people right. get together and say, hey, I'm going to get 33% because I wrote the hook or, you know, whatever the case is. On the performer side, we have a predetermined split. So it's feature performers collect 80% of the royalties and non-feature performers collect uh, 20% or a portion of 20%. The featured share includes, you know, the royalty artist or the named artist on the recording or uh, if there's a guest and they're named. So if it's like Andrew featuring Talia, probably the other way around. (laughs) But uh, then we would both split that feature performer share. Uh, and like I said, it's 80-20 in Canada. In the U.S., it's a little bit different. Their structure is uh, 90-10. Right. So feature performers collect 90% and non-feature performers collect 10%. Okay. And uh, of that 10%, vocalists actually split five and instrumentalists split the other five, which is a weird okay. disproportion. <laughs> wow. But uh, yeah, it's an interesting thing. You know, and it's different everywhere on the world. Every country uh, that we collect from has a different split. So in the UK, for example, it's typically 65-35, but the way they pay out that 35 is a little bit different than how we do it here. So you can kind of max out as a performer uh, in terms of what you collect. And then sometimes the money gets reallocated to the features, but here it's kind of a straight 80-20. So if there's uh, two performers who are considered non-featured, they would each collect 10%. Um, But yeah, it can get really nuanced. You know, we we collect, at XRX, we collect from over 40 territories around the world. Um, and we've seen, you know, a lot of different variety in terms yeah. of how that split works. But the principle is always the same. The featured usually collects more than the non-featured performer. So if recording artists hold neighboring rights, what are the main revenue streams that they can make money from? Matt Craig from MROC and Andrew Karras from Actor Racks explain the primary revenue streams that performers make money from based on the tariffs that MROC and Actor Racks collect royalties on. So... The royalties themselves are administered by an organization organization called uh, Resound. 
we consider them sort of like our umbrella organization. Um, so they, in the same way that SOCAN does, they're um, administering like licenses. They're the one petitioning um, businesses and radio stations mm -hmm. to, um, you know, get their licensing up to date and they're collecting all the revenue from the radio stations. Um, another one's also dealing with the Copyright Board of Canada to get the tariffs established that we operate under. Um, so for neighboring rights, um, most of your money, you're going to see it coming from a play on commercial radio, um, on CBC radio, on satellite radio. Um, there's also a tariff for what we call pay audio, which um, is not as active as much recently. It's like, do you remember back in the day, there was like, um, like on cable, there was uh, those like galaxy stations yeah. that would play stuff. And yeah, so, so stuff like that. Um, we are also getting into like streaming tariffs. There is um, some streaming tariffs popping up. Um, it's considered as of now for like what we call non-interactive streaming. Um, so Spotify wouldn't fall under that definition. Um, it would be essentially like any sites where they would have like a predetermined playlist and you, you know, one of those sites where it's like, oh, what kind of mood am I in? And you just click on a mood and then it, it plays the music for okay. you. You're not actually picking um, the tracks yourself. Um, we don't have an audiovisual tariff in place to um, collect for anything that's on like TV or film. Um, that said, this whole process, it's all like, you know, there's ongoing negotiations with yeah. the copyright board that, you know, we're advocating for it, Resound's advocating for it. We do have meetings like sort of the, at the higher management levels, there are meetings with Resound pretty frequently. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know if it's necessarily an annual process. It's sort of just an ongoing process. Okay. Um, you know, getting the new tariffs approved, it's just, it's a little, it's time consuming. Yeah, um, I can imagine. So, of course, we're always, you know, hoping to see more, you know, revenue streams become available, especially, you know, we're in the 21st century. Uh, things are sort of, you know, it's not all about radio anymore. <laughs> There's yeah. certainly different ways that people are consuming music. So, totally. um, yeah, it's it's an ongoing process. But as for now, those are so, that's sort of where the money's coming from. Yeah, right now we have, and as far as, uh, you know, our revenue streams, we have, we collect on and distribute on rather, uh, you know, terrestrial radio, which is like CBC and commercial radio stations, uh, public performance, which is like the use of recordings, you know, at places like retail stores and bars and that kind of thing. And then there's also digital broadcast, which includes satellite radio um, <clears throat> and pay audio, which is like the TV channels right. that play music. And then also... Streaming, but our streaming only applies to non and semi-interactive streaming, which is not Spotify. Spotify oh, is yeah. fully interactive, which means you can select yeah. what you want to listen to at any time. Um, so that's kind of a blind spot, I think, for performers right now, and it's something you know that we we feel should be yeah. remunerated. And I think right now it's because you know the the labels have licensing licensing deals with kind of the the kind of major streaming platforms and they um you know the royalty artists would get paid through those agreements right. Right. but there are also a lot of other performers right. on the recording who are not royalty artists and are yeah. not getting money so it's a it's a weird area you know it's very yeah. new i i'll be honest i don't fully understand yeah. how all that works and, I, and i'm still kind of working my brain through that yeah. but it's you know it's a really interesting area and it's sort yeah. of this is the new frontier like there is no ownership right so Everyone's just streaming. Along with the decrease in performers' income from the shift towards streaming, Jeff Wolpert also discussed how performers' pay has decreased significantly, and session work is increasingly done overseas, thus leaving many musicians without work or with work that's underpaid. So it depends on which field. So in the movie field, um, they have a union, okay. the musicians' union, and the music musicians' union get, uh, sees them uh, um, uh, decently paid and uh, contributions to pension funds and things like that. Um, and then, this is hard to keep now, but um, um, uh, uh, arranges to have them paid when their work is used in a method they did not agree to. So in other words, if you, if you do something for a theatrical movie and then it shows on television, they're paid again. They get, they get a, a special payment for that. If it goes onto the airplane and you watch on the airplane, theoretically, they're paid again. If it goes onto a streaming service, they're paid again. Now, they're not paid the same amount every time. Uh, and that, uh, and that's really, but the theory is, is that the contract was for a particular use. Right. Right? And therefore, if you use it for something else, it should, there should be another payment made. Now, um, that's on the movie side of things. Uh, um, uh, there is a problem. 
The problem is that um, there are jurisdictions uh, where that doesn't apply. So um, if you were to record in England, for instance, um, uh, you could do what's called a buyout, which is pay the musicians once for any use. And that's right. Now, that's not as good, but it's far cheaper for the producer, even if it's the same amount of money to pay those musicians as it was to pay them here in North America, that means there's no further payment yeah. to make. So if you're, if you're the producer, you want that, which of course sucks the business away to jurisdiction. So now we're doing sessions in Eastern Europe. I've been to Moscow a couple of times. My trips to Beijing are mostly based on that, where they can get huge groups of people for much less money. We're at the point now where we're doing the, we're doing the sessions and we're not going. So we do them over, we do them live remote over the internet, where the orchestra is being recorded, let's say, in, in Bratislava or Macedonia or places like that, in quite large studios, because most of them were state-owned radio studios, which tend to be gigantic. And um, uh, they've got an uh, uh, engineer or a conductor there. We've sent them the music in advance and whatever tracks they have to play to. And we are live listening to them when they play with their music in sync with the movie here. And, and that sort of stuff with the system compensating for the delays and stuff like that. And, you know, people are, the musicians are happy to work, but they're working at, I don't know, a fifth of the cost or something yeah, like that. And there's no... Of labor yeah, it is. So, and that's happened. So that's, that's sort of decimated the union culture, yeah. um, which is tough. Although the industry has changed dramatically and the majority of musicians' incomes have faced a steep decline, as Matt and Andrew pointed out, Performers' rights and royalties are always being renegotiated as the industry evolves. For now, the most important takeaway for any Canadian recording artist or performer listening to this is to register with a collection society such as Actorax or MROC, so you'll be able to collect royalties on the songs you've performed on and hopefully be set up to collect more as these organizations push for a greater share of royalties from revenue streams like streaming. I'll leave you with some final advice from Byron Pascoe, Jeff Wolpert, and Andrew Karras on making money and building a career as a recording artist in Canada's music industry. A lot of people think that if they're a member of SOCAN, that's all they need to do in order to get all the money they're ever entitled to. And that is not accurate. Um, there is additional funding for you as a writer. There's additional funding for you as a performer. There's additional funding for you as an owner of a recording so long as your music has actually been exploited. If you have a song that you recorded and you put it on your computer and no one ever knows about it, there's no money that's ever going to be generated from that song. Clear, clearly, but you know, the more your music is out there in the world, the more that there are royalties that are being accumulated for you as those three things, a writer, a performer, and an owner. And until you register with you know, the, the, the organizations of your choice to collect these royalties, it's, you know, money would be accumulated and, you know, you're not accessing it. Uh, you know, it's not lost forever. If, you know, money that's generated today isn't lost forever tomorrow. Um, and I, you know, without speaking to how long these royalties last before, you know, you can't access them anymore. You know, my comment would just be that um, you should sign up if you're not signed up with relevant organizations now and try to get as, you know, try to go back as far as you can from the different royalties that are available. I think it's important you find people to work with who are the same place that you are, right? It's one thing to become mentored by somebody and all that kind of stuff. You can do that. There's lots of places, school amongst other places and things like that for doing that. That's, all, that's pretty good. But I think um, uh, if you want to do this, there's, a, there's always a rising wave of people who are coming up and stuff like that and you want to ride that wave and so sometimes people say to me hey uh i've been making records for a while at home and stuff like that uh can you get me in with beyonce it's you know i'm going look here's the way it works <laughs> you know what I, mean? like, I said obviously nobody's going to take somebody who's they've never heard of to work on an important project. So what you need to do is find somebody who's kind of at the same level you are, where money is not the object at this point in time. What's, what The object here is gaining experience. And as long as you can survive, I mean, you know, and sometimes you have to do another job to survive. There's, there's a, there's a time-honored tradition of people having 
you know, day jobs or something they do in order to further their ambitions in another field. Yeah. And, um, you know, we wouldn't have like the hospitality trade if it weren't for that, right? And that's a, and we've all done it. And, um, and uh, uh, it's, there's no, there's no shame in it. And uh, yeah. so the world really doesn't work in the kind of American Idol sense where you wait in a long line and some, somebody makes you a star because that's not generally how it works. Usually there's a long history of having come up inch by inch till somebody gets a break. And you have to, yes, you have to be in the right place, right time, blah, blah, blah. But you have to create those opportunities by showing up and, and doing the work. And, and uh, the best way I've seen to do that is just find other people who are in the same position and get together with them and do it. Yeah. You know, do it. You can put it out. There's no guarantee anybody would like it, but hey, that's how it works. There's no guarantees anyways, you know. And, um, you know, we don't have... Uh, there are record companies. We don't have the same level of artist development from the record companies that we used to, which was the uh, curator of stuff. Somewhere you could send your stuff, it would be listened to. And if they were interested, they'd show. I mean, good or bad, there was a curator there. And if they were a good curator, they found good stuff. Um, now it's true. Everybody can put something out. Doesn't mean there's that many more talented people, right? That's the problem. Or not talented, or stars, or whatever, or Mozarts, or whatever you want to call it. You know what I mean? So that's the problem. There's more noise now to get through, and that's a. But that's not a reason to stop doing it because the the truth is, you you just need to make stuff. You need to produce stuff in the most basic sense of the word. Which you need to take something and make something somebody else can listen to it on, and so, and just do that with whomever you're inclined to do it with, and don't worry too much about who at what level or getting to the top or any of those sort of things. Because the truth is you, you have to rise on that wave. You can't just, you know, that reaching for the star and, you know, grabbing for the brass ring kind of business, that's, that's, that's a nice thought. Um, and, and, it's sort of, and we have a lot of those, you know, the talent shows basically that make you think it's that, but it's not that most of the time. You know? that's, a, yeah. that's an odd situation yeah. Yeah. and a strange bet to make. But bet on yourself. Yeah. Like that, you know what I mean? If you bet on yourself, you say, I, I want to do this, and I'm going to do it, and I'm just going to get in there and start doing it. I've never lost a dime investing in myself. Yeah. Right? True. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay. Great advice. Thank you. You know, there's this, this saying that somebody told me once that I really like, and I, I've kind of I've tried to adapt it. <laughs> so the saying that they mentioned was uh, "luck gets you there and skill keeps you there," mm. which I really like. Um, but the 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 way that I like to adapt it is like a lot of the skill now is kind of being savvy about the industry, right? So I feel like if if you're waiting for luck, which is that opportunity where someone will hear you and will just kind of change your career, I think you'll get more opportunities for luck with better skill, and your yeah. skill can be enhanced by education and by what you know about the industry. So I find that, you know, it's helpful for to be, to always be in touch with not-for-profits. I think people underuse them. Like yeah. me, for example, if anyone wants to contact me and ask just basic questions, mm -hmm. they can do it anytime. You know, there are other people at ActuRacks that work in membership and the same thing. And, you know, I think most other not-for-profits in the Canadian music industry would say the same. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to speak on their behalf, but I'm sure SoCan would be like, yeah, call us, we'll give cool. you information, or yeah. like Factor or whoever. And I think it's just an underused tool. Like mm -hmm. people forget that these places exist. And to bring it back to my first statement, it's like the more information you have, the better, the more likely you are to have a lucky experience that gets you, you know, into a place where your skill can take over. Thank you so much to Jeff Wolpert Andrew Karras, Matt Craig, Byron Pesco, and Matteo Palmasano for their contributions to this episode. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Off Key. I've linked to the show notes for this episode in the description, so check those out for a summary of key points, links, and resources on the topics we discussed during this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a rating and review on iTunes. They really help us to improve and create the best content possible for our listeners. If you have any topics that you'd like me to cover, please email me at offkey at membrane.net or send me a message at either Membrane Labs or Talia SW on Instagram. This episode of Offkey is written and produced by me, Talia Seidman-Wright, with writing and research assistance from Dino Chilotti. 
Thank you to Torben Witterman for creating the music used in our intro and outro and transitions. Offkey is a member of Membrane Entertainment Canada, aka Membrane Labs, a music services company that provides distribution and label services for Canadian artists and labels. We're also exploring ways, like with this podcast, to help all musical artists be better informed, know their rights, and ensure that they get all of the money that is rightfully owed to them. 